Episode 48, Seat of Government. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a February 13, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. It starts with one thing, I don't know why, it doesn't even matter how hard you try, keep that in mind, I'm designed to try to... Where does a mayor rest his motion? In a chair, that's where. Join museum director Bob Kekeisen and me as we examine a chair from the office of Topeka's first African-American mayor, James McClinton. He presided over the city's most important commemoration, and he thought his office could use a little sprucing up for the occasion. Find out why the mayor was put in the hot seat for purchasing this chair. Later, you'll find out which presidential candidate won the endorsement of William Allen White when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White, Election 2008. Will Kansas's best-known newspaper editor throw his weight behind a Republican or a Democrat? But hold on, we have one more candidate to go. This week, we connect White to Mike Gravel, a former senator from Alaska and currently a Democratic presidential candidate you've never heard of. But first, seat of government. Things aren't the way they were before. You wouldn't even recognize me anymore. Not that you knew me back then. Good afternoon, Bob. Good afternoon, Merle. How are you? I'm good. Today we're going to talk about a uh, pretty impressive office chair that belonged to James McClinton, who was the first black mayor of Topeka. This tall, sort of modern-looking black leather chair was used in the mayor's office um, of Topeka, which is the state's third largest city. Yes, it is. So uh, the man who sits in this chair has, you know, sort of theoretically wields or governs a pretty big group of people, about 120,000 people. So my first question, James McClinton was appointed mayor in 2005. Uh, Topeka mayors usually aren't appointed. What were the circumstances of McClinton's appointment? Well, McClinton followed a mayor who had resigned over some uh, violations of campaign contributions. And there were talks of actually ousting that mayor from office. And before it got to that formal procedure, uh, the former mayor resigned. So it was up to the uh, city council at that point to uh, find a new mayor. And so they just put out a call for people to apply for the mayor's job. And they got, I think, I'm not sure how many applications they actually got, but they, they essentially had 40 people. Uh, that's four zero, 40 people they were looking at, that they looked at resumes and narrowed those down and uh, hired James McClinton. Uh, so he wasn't elected mayor of Topeka. In a sense, he was, but he was, he was elected by the city council, not mm-hmm. by the populace at large. So he, so he was going to serve out the remaining yeah, term? Yeah, serve out the remaining term. Have, of, and he mm-hmm. wielded the full, the full authority of yeah, the mayor. Yeah, he, he was, had the mayor's office and uh, you know, had earlier served on the city council. So he was familiar with, with city government. He mm-hmm. was not an unknown. It's not like he just, you know, they just plucked some guy off the street. So mm-hmm. he had the experience and had been on city council, I think, two terms before that. During the territorial period in Kansas, a state uh, constitutional convention was actually convened in Topeka to draft a sort of a renegade free state constitution. Do you find it odd, with that in mind, the fact that they were drafting a free state constitution, do you think it's odd then that Topeka didn't see its first black mayor until 2005? 
Well, <laughs> not really, because when you look at the Topeka uh, Constitutional Convention, it was to make Kansas a free state, but it didn't give voting rights to blacks. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there were some members of the convention that actually wanted it written into that um, constitution that blacks would be banned from Kansas. So that's um, so free uh, state is is a little different than abolitionist. Yeah, that's a, that's a common con uh, confusion amongst people is that free state and abolitionists are, are synonymous when they're not. Where, where abolitionists wanted the complete abolition of slavery, free staters wanted Kansas in as a free state, but they weren't necessarily for uh, full civil rights for African Americans. So it, it doesn't surprise me that it uh, that. We didn't have a black mayor for a long time. Also, uh, Topeka, like a lot of communities in Kansas, is predominantly white. Um, I mean, generously, I would say it's probably not uh, racist, but it's just something. In fact, I think Mayor McClinton at the time said he didn't think it was something that people um, didn't want a black mayor. They just hadn't really ever thought about it and hadn't really been presented the opportunity. And once he was elected mayor, um, you know, he himself says he got a good reception and he never really felt like there was any racism uh, directed toward him as mayor. So where does that put um, McClinton in the bigger picture of African-Americans in public office? Well, I think McClinton's, like a lot of African-American officials, uh, we the country, the, the United States, hasn't seen a lot of um, black officials till later, uh, but or I should say till more recently, but there are instances of uh, African-Americans being uh, elected to office pretty early. The, the first black elected town official uh, was John Langston, and this is in 1855. Wow, 1855. And, yeah, and he was elected a town clerk of uh, Brownhelm Township, I think is how you pronounce that, in Ohio. Uh, and there were some instances of, of blacks being uh, elected um, Two local offices early on, but for the most part, you didn't see more widespread um, black office holders probably until the 1960s. And the first black mayor uh, was Robert Clayton Henry, who was an appointed mayor of Springfield, Ohio, in 1966, um, appointed by the city council. And that's how a lot of mayors um, under a council form of government are elected. They're elected by their um, by their city council members. But the first black mayor of a major city was Carl Stokes, who was elected mayor of Cleveland, Ohio, in 1967. And I remember, you know, I would have been in my early teens at the time, and I remember that being a big deal. That and that was by popular vote. Popular vote, yeah. Carl Stokes is mayor of this major, you know, metropolitan area in Cleveland. Um, in, in Kansas, the first black mayor of a major city was in Wichita, and uh, that's A. Price Woodard. He was mayor from 1970 to 71, and again was elected by the his city council members. Um, a. Price Woodard was on the Wichita City Council, and the other city council members elected him as mayor in 1970. Did you know this guy, Bob? I did not meet him, but I was living in Wichita at the time. I mm. would have been in high school at the time, betraying my age. But Wichita currently has an African-American mayor who was elected by the populace at large because Wichita changed the way it elects mayors, its form of government, a number of years ago. And so now the, the mayor in Wichita is elected at large, and um, Carl Brewer was the first black mayor of Wichita in a citywide election, and that was just this last April. So while you have instances of African-American city officials being elected as you know, early as the 1850s, it really is more of a recent. Uh, trend, uh, probably the 1960s forward, that you see uh, more black officials. What were the major events that took place during McClinton's term here in Topeka? 
Well, he came in at a, at a very interesting time because we were coming up on the city's 150th birthday, mm-hmm. uh, sesquicentennial, the founding of Topeka. It was also the year of the 50th uh anniversary of the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Which was um, a big deal. Yeah, like, huge Not deal. just regionally. Yeah, not regionally, not nationally. It was worldwide. It was getting mentioned in the world press. Here's the 50th anniversary of the desegregation of public schools in the United States, and it focused right here on Topeka. And I think it was really cool and, you know, just appropriate that Topeka has its first black mayor uh, during the year of the 50th anniversary of Brown. And I think McClinton was very proud of that fact and uh, was you know, very aware of it, too, that we were going to have a lot of national leaders, a you know, ton of national press coming here. Uh, I remember, you know, attending the ceremonies uh, when President Bush was here uh, and seeing McClinton up on the podium with everybody. And that was just cool to think, you know, here's this guy that I'd met and, you know, I'd talked to on the street and he's standing up there next to the president representing the, representing the city. Well, uh, along with being uh, Topeka's first uh, African-American mayor, McClinton also has the dual title of being Topeka's last strong mayor. Uh, What does that mean to be a strong mayor, and how did that impact McClinton? In the strong mayor form of government, the mayor actually has... um, Something more than ceremonial power. I mean, the the, the mayor off the mayor's office works, you know, with the city council, and even as in Wichita and Topeka, when they had city council forms of government, the mayor was an integral part of that. You know, had a vote, was the the leader of the city, actually had a lot of the power vested in in that office. Um, when you think of strong mayors, you think of some of the major metropolitan areas like you know New York and Chicago, and you, know, you think of. Um, you know, the, the, the mayors that have really made their mark. And it's um, much more of an executive, yeah, legislative exactly. role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really the chief executive for the city, uh, mm-hmm. much like a governor would be for the state. Uh, but then there's also the city council, um, city manager form of government, which is what Topeka switched to. Um, and in that role, the mayor plays, has a lot less power, plays, a, is... I hate to say figurehead, but really a lot of people have said it's really more of a ceremonial office. You know, it's cutting ribbons and kissing babies and that type of thing. And that's that kind of denigrates it, I think, below what it what it really is and what it can be. But um, we switched to that form of government um, right after McClinton's term in 2005. And uh, he was not interested in taking part in that. And just to be clear, that was like already in process when McClinton took office, right? Yeah, yeah. He well, didn't he, do anything no, wrong. Oh no, it wasn't a reaction to, to McClinton. No, th- this uh, this had been studied for a long time, and there there are you know arguments as are on everything on all sides about whether we ought to have strong mayor uh, council, whether we ought to have uh, you know city council, city manager. We had this weird also city commission form of government years ago that um, was here, was in place before I lived here. And so, you know, I've never quite done all the research on it, but evidently there were um, different parts of the city that were, uh, and functions of the city that were under a commissioner. So there was like a parks commissioner and there was a streets commissioner. And, you know, so... So they were like the executives. They were like like department heads, but they were city commissioners. So it wasn't like now where you would have, you know, your your mayor and your council and then someone heads up the street department. The head the guy who headed up the street department or the parks department was actually a city commissioner. Mm-hmm. So it was a, kind of a weird animal and uh, functioned for a while, but I think it just got too, you know, unwieldy and they moved to the city council mayor and then moved to the um, city manager role. And once they made the switch to that, um, McClinton wasn't interested 
in uh, continuing as mayor under that form. He didn't want to be a figurehead mayor? No, he he thought that it was a, a step backward. Uh, I got to ask, why would anybody... Why would anybody want that job, uh, a ceremonial mayor? It just seems a little a little goofy. Well, I think there are people who feel that the mayor's office can still offer a lot of guidance and a lot of vision. And even in um, more of a ceremonial role, the mayor still runs the council meetings and still has a voice in how things go. Mayor McClinton was put in the hot seat uh, for moving this chair. You like that? Yeah, nice, nice play on words. Thanks. <laughs> for moving this chair into his office. Uh, why did he buy this chair, and what was the local media? Why were they upset about it? Well, that's a, I almost forgot that's what we were actually talking about is this chair here in the collections. Uh, yeah, um, right after... James McClinton became mayor, uh, he decided to buy some new office furniture for the office. Um, and I think rightly so. Because um, you saw you saw the old office. Yeah, I, I um, served on a couple of city boards, and so I knew Mayor Felker. He just passed away earlier this year. I knew Butch Felker, and I knew James McClinton, and I was in both of their offices. And Mayor Felker was a tall guy. And he had this old desk in his office that was actually up on wooden blocks to make it a little taller for him. And it really was just this beat-up, ratty old desk. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't, like, jaw-droppingly bad. I mean, he didn't walk in and go, oh, my gosh, look at that. But, you know, it was, a you know, the handles were falling off of it. It was, you know, but Butch was kind of a frugal, you know, everyman type of guy. He was just, you know... No pretensions whatsoever. Uh, I don't think I've ever met anybody that met Butch that didn't like him, was just a nice guy. No pretensions. And so I thought he he probably figured, hey, a desk is a desk. I need a space to work fine with me. Well, McClinton comes in, and you know, here's this ratty old desk that's way too tall. And even if you took it off the blocks, it still looked bad. And we're coming up on the city's 150th birthday, the 50th anniversary of Brown versus Board, national media, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, there was the Supreme Court justice. You oh know, yeah, I mean everybody's coming. Senators to headed to town, and he has. I and think he's the main executive, the strong mayor of Topeka. Exactly, and I think he's probably wisely thinking anybody from the president, you know, on down could wind up in my office. And here's this ratty old desk. So he went out. He and his wife went out to a local, locally owned furniture store, and scouted around and bought a new desk and a chair. And moved it in. And, and what was the media's reaction to that? Well, the paper ran an article, you know, saying the, the you know, mayor's spending the city money, you know, immediately. You know, mayor's out spending your tax dollars. Uh, but I, like I said, I had seen the desk. And then after McClinton was elected, um, I was chairman of the board of directors for our local convention and visitors bureau. So I'd seen Mayor Felker's desk. And then I got to see Mayor McClinton's desk. And, you know, it was a Marked improvement <laughs> over the old desk. It looked fine, but again, just as Felker's desk wasn't just like, you know, stunningly bad, McClinton's desk was a nice, you know, executive office desk and an executive office chair. But some of the letters to the editor and the articles in the newspaper, you know, you'd think he just went out and, you know, put gilt urinals in the in the bathrooms mm-hmm. or something. It was just like, oh my gosh, look at all this money. And he spent like, I think $2,000 for the desk and maybe 150 bucks, maybe mm-hmm. less than that, for the chair. You know, I defy you to go out and find a good executive office chair. Oh, that. I know. But people just kind of went, you know, it's like anytime government spends money, somebody says, oh, A, they shouldn't be doing that, or B, they could have done it cheaper. So he took some grief for it, but, you know, I mean, 
I saw both, and I, I, I think it was needed. <laughs> yeah, and if you if you look at his chair, it is a really nice. It's a nice chair. Oh, yeah. It's very well put together, mm-hmm. and um, he paid. I think, like you said, like one hundred and twenty dollars yeah. for it, and it's why, which is a, an unbelievably mm-hmm. cheap price for this chair. And I was and and he told I was talking to the mayor, mm-hmm. and he said that. He, his wife found it and then she's a very thrifty shopper yes I remember that at the point when he was kind of defending this in the paper at the time he said you know it's, it wasn't extravagant he said my wife looks for bargains <laughs> and you know they thought they got a good deal on this chair which it to my mind, they did, but uh, which kind of brings us to the point of you know what are we doing with the mayor's chair? You know what happened? You know didn't uh, you know isn't that city property? And how did it wind up in the state museum? And what happened was McClinton bought the chair from the city when his term was up. He purchased it and donated it to the museum, so it wasn't a transfer from the city. And uh, so if Mayor Bunton's looking for his chair, it's not like we went down there and grabbed it. Uh, but I do think it's interesting that we have some artifacts from the first African. American mayor in Topeka. So I think that's important, and particularly because he served um, during the Brown versus Board anniversary and and Topeka's 150th uh, birthday. Uh, I think there are significant items to have in the collection. Finally, Bob, um, a leather chair, um, a leather chair like this seems very appropriate for mayoral status. Uh, with that in mind, Bob, let's play a little word association game. Okay. I'll give you the name of the material, and you tell me who would use a chair made of that material. Okay. Okay, okay first, wood. Well, the uh, first name that would come to mind would be uh, Daniel Woodson, who was um, acting territorial governor. And not only was he acting territorial governor, he was acting territorial governor four separate times. So it's probably somebody you wouldn't really want to be comfortable in a chair. So a wood, a wood chair would, would work good for Daniel Woodson. <laughs> Um, uh, cotton. Okay, cotton, cotton, cotton. Um, I'm thinking a cotton chair is somebody pretty, pretty laid back. So I'm not going to go politician on this one. I'm, I'm going to go with Perry Como because he's the ultimate laid back guy. Yeah. I'm showing my age there, but I'm going to go Perry Como. <laughs> I'll go with that. Um, my favorite, vinyl. Oh, vinyl. Uh, well, as long as we're talking about my age, uh, vinyl would be anyone from my generation who stuck to those vinyl kitchen chairs in the summer before we had air conditioning and you sat down and you know you left half your thigh when when you got up yeah yeah well Bob I would say uh, growing up my parents were still using those same vinyl chairs but by that time they had all cracked and peeled Wow! and so that vinyl scrapes you good stuff alright Bob thanks for telling us about the mayor's chair my pleasure It's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Alawite, Election 2008. Joining me today is a new voice, Exhibits Technician Morgan Shortle. Hello. Morgan, how are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. And Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. Hello, Nikayla. This week, we are connecting William Alawite, the revered Kansas newspaper editor, to Mike Gravel the pipeline building former senator from Alaska and current Democratic <laughs> presidential candidate. Michaela, I believe you can connect White to Gra- Gravel. Yes. Um, Gravel served in the Senate during the Vietnam War, and in 1971, he filibustered the vote on a, a bill to extend the draft for two more years, which uh, was proposed by Richard Nixon. That was his there was, a little, was, there, was this the one that had a little drama to it? There was drama to it. He ended up, uh, he read from the Pentagon Papers on the floor of the Senate. That was part of his filibuster. And he read until 1 a.m., at which time he had to stop because he was crying so hard he couldn't <laughs> go on. 
Well, he's a he's an odd one. He is a character, yeah. But he was a little there. I think he had some hard feelings toward Nixon because Nixon had run on the reelect his reelection campaign ran on the idea that he was going to end the draft, mm-hmm. and then in seventy one he recommended extending it for two more years, essentially keeping the Vietnam War going. Mm-hmm. So Gravel didn't like that. He filibustered. Um, Nixon who proposed the extension of the draft was the vice president of um, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who mm-hmm. we know from past Six Degrees was friends with William Lindsay, and William Lindsay White was the son of William Allen White. So, Gravel to Nixon to Eisenhower to William Lindsay to William William Allen, four degrees. Nice. So, four degrees. Uh, Morgan, where does that put Gravel on the William Allen White scale of electability? Well, it looks like Obama... And Clinton and McCain and Gravel all have four degrees. So it looks like there is a three-way tie. Did I forget somebody? Well, we talked about this. That's a, that's a four-way tie. Four-way tie. But we've determined that because, oh. because Gravel doesn't really appear on any literature, I don't know if he ever sit on any ballots in any states, we're going to go ahead and go down to three-way tie between... Between McCain, Obama, and Hills. So, uh, and that would be the end of our Six Degrees of William Allen because we've ran out of candidates. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, the rest have all dropped out. Um, but interesting. Well, there's to a couple, know, but oh, but Huckabee that he has five, and Ron Paul have five. Our our little uh, little game here has ended up with basically the same results as the campaign is right now. And like America, you know, we can't uh, we can't break that that up. No. We can't. And you know, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's hard for a dead and man to endorse it. <laughs> and primarily, we're just kind of tired of doing it, so uh, we're going to wrap it up. Um, okay, so the challenge for next week, I'll go ahead and issue that at um, at the request of a listener. They wanted to know if we can connect William Allen White to Harry Houdini, the uh, Hungarian-born escape artist. So um, that's what we're going to try to do. And now we're going to move on to the next phase of Six Degrees of William Allen White. A few weeks ago, a listener wanted to know if we could connect ourselves to the Emporia editor. So we're doing that. Um, one museum employee at a time. <laughs> and this week, it's Morgan's turn to explain her connection to William Allen White. But first, Morgan, I took the liberty of uh, finding a solution for you. <laughs> <laughs> so here was my solution for, uh, from Morgan Shortle to William Allen White. Um, Morgan, your parents from from Marysville, Kansas. Yes. In case you didn't know, um, which is in north central Kansas, Marysville was the birthplace of what I like to think of as a low level beatnik poet and writer, Michael McClure. Um, McClure, along with poetry, he also wrote several articles for a magazine called Vanity Fair, which was founded in 1913. And Vanity Fair, most of their writers or a lot of their writers were drawn from a pool of. Uh, members of a hotel roundtable, popularly known as the Al, Al I cannot say this word <laughs> Algonquin Roundtable. So Vanity Fair, they lured people like Dorothy Parker wrote for them, and uh, Peter Benchley wrote for them. And as we know, Dorothy Parker, um, well, she was uh, NF or Nemesis Forever with a lady named Edna Ferber, and Edna Ferber was BFF with William Allen White. So there you go. It's Morgan, to her grandparents, to Marysville, to McClure, to Vanity Fair, to Edna Ferber, to William Allen White. That's a lot of degrees. <laughs> well, it sounded really good until I just said it like that. 
Okay, but you have an alternative an alternative solution. Yes. So my grandfather, Melvin Kramer, um, lived in Marysville, and he went to the University of Kansas, and he graduated in 1928. And he played both baseball and basketball. And he was friends with Fog Allen. The coach. The coach, Fog Allen. I think Fog was assisting or was coaching at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, in, as we know, Fog Allen coached under Naismith, the inventor of the game. Yes. And of basketball. <laughs> so, here's where it gets a little tricky. <laughs> um, there. William, okay, let's see. In the in 1910, <clears throat> the Board of Regents tried to disband football and college athletics. And William Allen White was a board member of the board. He was on That's the Board right. of Regents. Yeah. So and he was, it was split um, on the Board of Regents who favored football and who didn't. And William Allen White was one of them that did not favor that. So... Well, I didn't favor football at the university. He thought it because it was it was there was drinking going on. It's just kind of corrupt. It was very violent. Yeah, people yeah. had died. Like, yeah, like twenty people had died in like nineteen twenty or something or yeah. later on. But yeah, so um, it was. Well, that's not to interrupt you, but that's kind of unusual because Teddy Roosevelt was like a big supporter of football. And you'd think that they, since they were BFF. Well, they were BFF. They didn't have to agree on everything, <laughs> right? I'm saying. I'm, say, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, so Naismith and the students, or this Naismith backed the students because the students wanted to keep football, and Naismith was very vocal, saying that football should be allowed. And uh, it turned out that the Missouri Valley Conference, which KU was a part of, um, kept football, so um, it ended up being okay. But I'm sure Naismith, being the um, he was the physical athletics president or something. It was, I think it's probably like the modern day AD. Um, he was so he was vocal. So I'm sure he probably had communication between him and White just through words. That's pretty cool. cool. Which also helps my six degrees because I was trying to figure <laughs> out how to connect myself through Fog Allen because my mom met him one time when she was in high school. They built a new gym and Fog Allen came and gave the speech to dedicate the gym and she got his autograph. So there you go. Yeah. I cannot wow. connect Good. it through Fog Allen. Thanks, Morgan. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Good thing you found that pivotal, pivotal uh, Fog Allen, Naismith. William Allen connection. Yeah. It's like a trifecta. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To use another sports reference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, so that wraps up this episode of uh, Six Degrees of William Allen White. Uh, the next challenge is to connect White to Harry Houdini. And if you can come up with a solution for that, just send it to us to us at podcast at kshs.org. That is podcast with us. That concludes episode 48, Seat of Government. In the next episode, we take a look at a bookcase made by children at the Delaware Indian Mission in Northeast Kansas. It was given to Reverend John Pratt, who came to Kansas to teach Indian children to be white. 30 years later, he was advocating for improvements in their living conditions. I guess he was impressed with the bookcase. I've put my trust in you. Finally, if you would like to provide some feedback on our podcast, just send us an email at podcasts at kshs.org. That's podcasts with an S. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. 
Real people, real stories. Yeah, it doesn't even-